0: This is Dr. Charles Parker and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's the place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting, different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. Well, welcome board folks. Dr. Charles Parker here one more time and we have Yet another terribly interesting guest. I mean, you know, we're all animals scurrying around the face of the earth. We're a little more evolved than good hunting dogs and elephants, but we do have a certain level of herd instinct. And it's so interesting to see how that herd comes together or doesn't come together. And our guest today is going to talk about leadership, developing leadership, and developing teams. Dr. Christopher Avery, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Parker. Appreciate being here.
0: Well, it's going to be fun. We'll look forward to talking to you. It's going to be an interesting conversation because Dr. Avery, Christopher Avery, has a whole set of different perceptions about how to evolve the team and take it on down the road. So let me tell you a couple of words from our sponsors, and we'll find out more about Christopher. Core Brain Journal is supported by Great Plains Laboratory. They are deep international biomedical testing leaders For improved, targeted mind science details, international is an operational important term and biomedical is the big deal for these folks. As both laboratory and webinar global thought leaders, they provide the most comprehensive set of hard data measurement tools for real biomedical answers beyond customary guesswork. They also provide multiple training webinars for both the public and those medical providers on wanting to know how to use that great biomedical data effectively in their own offices. Check out their website for references and more testing details. And take note of this one. You can register for a complimentary test drawing. And they're giving these tests away, my friends. And if you register, they have a new one each week while they're working with us. And uh, like the organic acid tests, they have a mold mycotoxin test, oats is the organic tested IgG, a number of different tests. And if you go there and leave your name, you can go in for a drawing. It's at greatplainslaboratory.com forward slash CBJ. So thanks, Great Plains. Now let me tell you a little bit about our guest here. So Dr. Christopher Avery is a guy who has been very busy. He is called the Responsibility Process Guy. <laughs> and get this. He is a reformed management consultant. Now, you do want to know what a reformed management consultant is, as I do. I had the privilege of reading this. After a decade helping corporations help smart, ambitious professionals find ways to cope with their lives, they don't want and think they can't change. Christopher realized coping skills themselves are indeed overrated. An improved skill is knowing how to apply your innate leadership ability to face and overcome any challenge. So he's really saying, let's go from just coping skills to leadership ability. That's what we were talking about, the herds. And uh, Christopher says that itself is freeing. Today he supports leaders and leadership teams in generating newfound freedom, choice, and power for themselves and others. How does he do that? By advancing the world's first proven how-to approach for understanding, teaching, and taking personal responsibility. Key, key point, personal responsibility. He's a speaker with style and substance. I've enjoyed talking to him, just warming up before we get started here. His message is popular with audiences interested in agility, more leadership, not more leaders, (laughs) and results that matter. So he wants to see the action, not just the... He wants to see the process, not just the content. He's authored the popular classic, Teamwork is an Individual Skill for Everyone Who Wants to Be Done with Bad Teams. His new book, The Responsibility Process, offers practices gleaned from 25 years of applied research on responsibility-taking and true leadership. He's the host of the Leadership Gift program and it's worldwide community of leaders and coaches who are mastering responsibility and producing results that matter. That's the Leadership Gift program. And he's also the CEO of PartnerWorks. So, which is a leadership development team. So, he is joining us from Beautiful Downtown Austin, Texas, where the heat is oppressive, but it's just about the same thing here in Virginia Beach, Christopher, I can tell you that. So let's get started with how he turned. Christopher, how did you get interested in leadership in the first place? I mean, you know, there's so many things that a person who has any kind of psychological ability could do. The question is, what turned the tide for you? That's a, Thank you. My original interest
1: was in uh, peer leadership, so I was doing this work as a management consultant. I was doing a tremendous amount of training in huge corporations, and I realized I was spending so much time just helping people get a break from their day-to-day routine. Uh, and that's what I I spoke about helping people cope instead of actually grow. And I oh, learned pretty early. I I wanted to figure out how to get. It. Oh, I was you know so many so many people doing corporate training are uh, sort of paid entertainers and. We're going for the good marks. People enjoyed it, had a good day. But at the end of the day, they go, oh, got to go back to the desk tomorrow. And I realized so much of what I was doing. And I, I was training other people's material at that time and working with a larger firm. And I realized so much of what I was doing was simply helping people cope and blow off some steam and reduce some stress as opposed to truly grow. My interest, Dr. Parker, was in figuring out how to teach software project leaders how to build teams. This is a direct request from an education manager in a, a huge corporation that had just uh, come out of spending uh, many years as a software development, a second line manager, a director. And I asked her, "In you know, she's uh, doing this, this rotation in education. I said, you know, what keeps you awake at night? What gives you knots in, st- in your stomach that you now want to take Correct. care of as an education, an education <laughs> manager. And she said, I wish that I could teach engineers Uh, computer scientists who are leading software teams, how to build teams. So I took that challenge and I went off and worked with some uh, partners that knew the literature on groups and relationships and marriage and counseling and teams. And I had done my research, uh, my dissertation on simultaneous cooperation and competition in a research laboratory where, oh, yeah. where, the, yeah, where the researchers come from different companies, but they're working together on the technology. And then when the technology is proven, they have to break up with each other and go back into their own companies so that they don't have uh, justice department issues
0: with uh, collusion. So, <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I mean, that is really a very interesting problem yeah. Because you want to tap the brains, but then the ha- and you know and of course that's going to be a whole lot of interesting questions follow from that. But I don't want to interrupt you because you're on a you're yeah. a nice roll here,
1: right? So for me, it was uh, the juice that turned out to be the magic juice was this notion of shared responsibility. So all of us who are in the world of training have to reduce an entire body of knowledge down to a few important tools or principles for the students to be able to grasp and. And the one that I decided to settle on was shared responsibility. And the idea is that when teams and corporations really come together, It's because they overcome all the siloing structure that the organization puts in place to keep them individualistic, right? So we've got titles and roles and individual performance plans, and sometimes we're cross-functional, so we all come from different departments, we report to different people. But if we really become a team, it's because we overcome all of those fences and actually rise above our individual accountabilities to a shared sense of responsibility, not only for the thing, the project, but also for each other. Hence, high-performance team dynamics, as you know, is a immediate organic change in how we communicate with each other because of our feeling state of caring so much about what we're doing that we tell the truth more likely, we give feedback in real time, we keep each other up to date, we talk in terms of the work and the project in terms of judgment or evaluation of each other. You know, all those wonderful high performance team dynamics that people love. So my turning point was after earning a doctorate, after going back to the corporate world that I had left to return to school and do these studies, I went in search of trying to understand what is this stuff called personal responsibility and where does it come from? And if it's not there, can you generate it? Can I teach someone who doesn't care as much about the psychology of it as I do to generate it? And it's been a long, long journey of wondrous uh, development and uh, learning and my own transformation since then.
0: Well, you know, one of the things I think when you're talking, I'm listening to it, and I'm thinking about just every example you gave there, which was uh, quite interesting to me, and I'm sure to others, was the level of uh, unwritten intimacy that takes place with that kind of situation. I mean, yes. A person is more responsible for themselves, but every example you gave was an increased responsibility for others, and a certain measure of intimacy. In that you are going, and a certain measure of trust. That that trust and in intimacy, it would be. It sounds very much like it's part of that whole situation. Because when, I've been in large organizations that had no intimacy and no trust, and I can I've lived in that in that other world for sure. So is that right. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about that, please. About the intimacy of shared responsibility? Well, or I'm, the really- I'm wondering if I'm correct, really. I'm just wondering what you thought about that, because I don't know if you actually talk about intimacy per se, but it sounds like the way you're talking is people just get closer. They would actually get closer, and they would risk more in that, and they would have a clearer idea of their joint level of responsibility, as you were saying, that's what you're talking about. But a person yeah. have some confidence in their colleagues. It's an interesting shift that
1: causes it. So one of the things that was that, that I had going for me was that I was doing this work at a time when the science on group cohesion, what causes a group to come together, was shifting. So from the 40s, which is when team building started, especially around uh, personality testing and Myers-Briggs and DISC oh, yeah, and things yeah. came yeah. out of all of that, you know, Minnesota, Minneapolis, multi-phasic yep. inventory, yep. Yep. MMPI, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... For the next uh, five decades, teamwork was all about interpersonal attractiveness, liking each other. And the rush to the personality inventory was useful in that if we could get people to understand each other a little bit better, that Mm -hmm. they might be able to find each other more likable and and work better together. In the postmodern era of social science, uh, around the late 80s, 90s, and and since, the, the science on group cohesion has turned towards what we might call brightness of the future or task interdependence. In other words, if you and I are feeling like we're in the same boat together and your fate and my fate is linked so that if you're working harder, it makes me feel like you are making my life easier and then I want to match you. Mm -hmm. And if I'm working harder, it makes you feel the same way and you want to match me. But Mm -hmm. that seems to be the turns towards interdependence, towards this feeling of relationship which can lead to what you're calling intimacy or at least more openness, more trust, more honesty. And it's different than the negative interdependence when an organization pits us against each other. So let's say you're a department manager and I'm a department manager and the more successful you are, the harder my job is. And the more successful I am, the harder your job is. And that certainly is not conducive to us having a great relationship.
0: And those vertically managed outfits. I mean, you get vertically managed outfit in which the boss is the demagogue and the whole thing. And mm-hmm. he wants to keep that narcissistic place of I'm in charge and, and, everybody else here is an idiot except me. And I'm making a lot of money. So that, right. <laughs> and so then what happens is everybody competes for being the favorite son yep. or you know, so daughter, whatever. So that then there's this internal deconstruction that takes place. I don't know if that's the correct term or not, where everybody's, in some unwritten way, competing, gossiping, and being negative with everybody else to the extent that the mission itself is completely overlooked because it's really all about getting daddy to give them some accolade.
1: Right. Those are going to be cultures of blame and justify, which is the bottom of uh, the responsibility process, quite toxic and very easy to see and very easy to feel when you're in it. Tremendous amounts of finger pointing, Millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars spent in meetings trying to uh, solve problems that never get past blaming each other and justifying all the conditions and situations about why we can 't do anything except come back and meet and complain more about this and you know when i 'm teaching the responsibility process to audiences, I ask people how many of you have participated recently in spending millions of dollars of your company 's money in one of these meetings of six eight ten. 20 people meeting over and over and over, and we never get past blame and justify on the responsibility process chart. And all the hands go up, Dr. Parker, all the hands go up.
0: I'm telling you, the proclivity for gossip, I'm putting it down to one word, you got it in two, but I'm telling you, the the gossip situation there is exactly what people are doing. I mean, and they're attempting to make themselves a positive influence uh, while running everybody else down, which of course is just, as I said, that's, that's very interesting. Yeah. So here's, as a psychiatrist, I, I assume you
1: and I are aligned when I say this. What we know is there's nothing wrong with those people. They're smart, they're well-educated, they're high functioning, and they're doing the best they know how to do at that time. Yep. And the only way we can change things is if we start from the position that there's nothing wrong with them right? So if we invalidate them or blame them for what they're doing, then we don't take ownership to see what's true about the system or the environment and start to fix it. So that's the conversation I get to have with leadership over and over and over. I can't make sure that your population stops blaming you, but I sure can tell you that you're not going to make change around here until you stop blaming them.
0: That one needs to be Four or five times underlined with big exclamation points. Isn't that the way it is? Because, in fact, I was thinking of that very thing. I've been in two organizations where the leaders were inveterate gossip, and those are large, successful organizations, you know, in certain respects. But they all dematerialize because what happens is the leader setting the example by saying negative things, implying, you know, you could be the favorite son if you think the same way I'm thinking. And then what happens is they do blame others and they don't really take the responsibility on for group cohesion and how can we actually make this team work together, which is really quite interesting. I hadn't thought about that before.
1: Yeah, I've always thought that for such organizations to survive and to create the value that they do, to make the money and the profits that they do, they must have incredibly valuable products and services because they've got such... A corrupt organization, in terms of its health, I won't say corrupt. They've got such an unhealthy organization. <laughs> you know, they've got clogged arteries yeah. and uh, high cholesterol, yeah. and uh, you know, really bad kidneys, and their gallbladder's shot. They've got no stamina, and yet they must have an incredibly valuable product or service to be making the money they are you know wonder what they could do if if their culture was actually healthy
0: well i think one of the things that happens in those situations is there is no really good uniformity of product or service either so from a branding point of view everybody's doing their own thing they don't really have a cohesive brand process you're more skilled about talking about this than i am but because i think everybody's fragmented so much that they're just waiting for something to come in the door instead of thinking about how can we advance this, this entire um, uh, process of working with the people that do come in the door? Oh, I think
1: there's plenty of organizations that are doing that pretty well. I think you and I are probably here uh, casting. <laughs> I'm with you. We're casting aspersions on some of the big behemoths bureaucracies that can't figure out how to get out of their own way.
0: Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm, my is experience is very limited. I'm not, you're, you're on the big side. I'm on the small side, you know, cause I think it happened. The ones that I experienced are relatively small groups, you know, two, 300 people, something like that. And, and I think part of the problem is, and I'd be interested in your comment about this is because if they're uh, spread all over uh, one of the things I tried to do with one of the groups that I was in, which had various offices around the United States was, let's get together and meet and talk about these things together. And they were in different offices. And the person in charge really was threatened by everybody getting together and talking about where would the organization go. So had different kinds of negative things to say and ultimately took that whole thing down, trying to be as nice as he could to me, but was definitely trying to kill me in the process.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so be it. <laughs> well, there's there's a lot of really good coaches, organizational coaches out there that are uh, very fond of uh, the work of Harrison Owen in uh, open space technology. And mm-hmm. If you're familiar with open space technology, no, I'm not. But please, a, please share that. Yeah, it's an unfacilitated facilitation framework that mm-hmm. allows a group of people to get together and uh, have the conversations they want to have because. The facilitation is, it's it's very well supported. So there's an opening circle where the concept is described. The idea is that there's a marketplace for ideas where anybody can run into the middle of the circle, pick up a, you know, it's usually a piece of eight and a half by 11 paper and a Sharpie. Mm-hmm. And they can write a few words on this piece of paper proposing the conversation that they want to host. And then there's a, a board which is a matrix of, let's say, we have uh, a half a dozen breakout rooms and we have uh, four time sessions uh, throughout the afternoon. Then we have the opportunity to have 24 hosted meetings this afternoon. And so you stand up and you pitch your idea and you go put it on the board and somebody pitches their idea, put it on the board, somebody pitches their idea, put it on the board. And then there's a few rules. The rule that everybody remembers the most is the law of two feet. And the law of two two feet says that if you're not contributing or learning, move to another room. So it's it's permission to move around. (laughs) You don't have to choose a room, go in and be locked in. You can move from room to room. You can stay five minutes. You can
0: go in the hall and take a nap. I mean, that sounds so very cool. I mean, just when you were describing it, I was thinking about how much I would have enjoyed being in a circumstance like that because of the my own innate curiosity you know mm-hmm. so to be something that i'm going to be able to chase down that that i think i know a little bit about and i like to chase that down and then yeah. my ability to just like i'm doing with you process this a little bit with a person who knows more about it than i do who can say hey here's another way of looking at this and that process sounded very very interesting
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there's a there's a huge body of knowledge on this. Harrison Owen is still alive. Uh, this has been around for decades. This open space technology, it's it's you know gaining greater and greater following. But one of the things he wrote, the original book, I think, was that he did his best facilitation work after it was all kicked off, and he went back to his hotel room and took a nap you <laughs> because it runs itself. <laughs> it works. It works. And I told the story because I've been involved in lots of conversations about proposing to leaders that they get their two or 300 people from all over the world together for a couple of days and allow them to have the conversations that they want to have, whether it's completely open space or whether it's partially designed and partially open space. Mm-hmm. And while some leaders get it immediately and love it, there are those who fear the people will not know how to have the conversations that they believe they ought to have. And that the time will be wasted or will turn into play or something. And everyone that I've seen, the value created by allowing people to have the conversations with their colleagues that they want to have is, is amazing amounts of value. And that would be a huge, very, very- huge amount of action plans and change uh, going on immediately following
0: yeah, the thing I was busting to say, and sorry I interrupted you, but but you know, the whole thing of as I'm talking about this and kind of reliving moments in my own life with people who were having a problem with a an attempt, an uninformed attempt to try to put some kind of a process like that in place. I think looking back on it, the individuals in question and two specifically were really threatened by the process themselves in terms of losing their power and authority. Somehow mm-hmm the authority would actually be diminished and their self-esteem was challenged because they wouldn't know what to do with it if, it if they got diminished in some way and they wouldn't know where to take it. If somebody had a better idea than they had, that so they have to have all the ideas come through them. You have to kiss the ring in order to get an idea up there. You know, it's a, yeah, you've heard that before.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, which which is why I continue to be enamored with... Shared leadership, which is shared responsibility, and self-leadership, which is personal responsibility. Mm -hmm. And what I call leading others, I say it's 95% self-leadership. And if you get your principles and your values and your integrity in line and you're investing yourself in a cause, a problem, a space that you care deeply about, then don't be surprised to turn around and see dozens or hundreds of people wanting to go there with you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I think in this modern era of management, and um, by modern, I'm I'm talking about the last hundred years. I think that we have aggrandized the idea of leadership. That by virtue of position, there's something about that that makes you worthy of being called leader. And you know, my own learning is that I think leadership is a consequence of being in motion towards an important purpose. And when that purpose is bigger than it's something that you can accomplish by yourself, then you must mobilize others to come help you. That's leadership. I mean, it has nothing to do with title or funding or any of that. For me, it has to do with being moved by an important purpose and wanting to make some change around that and needing the help of others to do it.
0: That is so profound. Actually, you've, you've done this now at least two times, probably four, because I've had this reaction several times in talking to you, Christopher. I think we need to have a set of Dr. Christopher Avery quotes <laughs> <laughs> as as part of the show notes. Because All right. that was really very concise And so beautifully said because, you know, that, that, it's so commonsensical when you said it. It's like, hey, I knew that, but I had no idea about it. I mean, you really just put that thought in there and immediately it blossomed because it has such intuitively correct values associated with it that really honor everyone in the organization and really change the focus from the leader to the organizational objectives, whatever they happen to be.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Very kind. I, I think um, listening for that man or woman who says, I never set out to be a leader. Right? Mm-hmm. I'm one by accident. That's often the kind of person I'm talking about here.
0: Yeah. Very, very interesting. Now I'm going to ask you a question. We're going to take a little break here. I love talking to you. We're going to come back and I'm going to ask you this question. And I want to put you on the spot, but I do think that if anybody's tracking with me on this, there are some questions that are coming up in their mind. And the basic question, I think, it's certainly in my mind, it must be in others, is when we get back, how do you actually begin to, what's the structure by which you do that with a group of people? I mean, I can see the challenge. I know what happens in group process. I've worked in group process. But the question is, how do you actually set out to do that with someone who brings you in to consult? What do you actually do. I mean, these, these are profound statements, but there's got to be some way that you might actually pull those pieces together. I'm gonna to put you on the spot when we get right back. We'll just take a brief break and we'll be back in just a moment, folks. Today, the world of mind, science, psychiatry, and mental health is rapidly changing with innovative, comprehensive testing that takes both patients and practitioners into a new world of measured details with useful, understandable and remarkably actionable plans. The key phrase here is cost effective. Testing also introduces a key parallel word predictability. Psychiatric treatment failure, especially after multiple medications and our brief hospitalizations, arises directly from the complexity of measurable brain body imbalances and impediments that explicitly interfere with medical outcomes and create costly difficulties with inadequately informed supplement and medication trials over time. Great Plains provides a leadership team of biomedical experts with advanced laboratory insights approved nationally both by the FDA and CLIA laboratory certifications and is available internationally for both public and medical professions. Great Plains Laboratory is the primary laboratory we've used at CoreSight for years with excellent customer service for both patients and medical colleagues. They are on the spot. They get it every time. In addition, they provide exemplary training modules, which are webinars and conferences, in an effort to broaden practice perspectives wherever you live. Do follow up on one of these complimentary test offers today at http://greatplainslaboratory.com forward slash CBJ. Yeah, that's Core Brain Journal CBJ. Well, in truth, Dr. Christopher Avery, I know I'm not putting you on the spot because this is the kind of thing that you deal with all the time, but I am terribly interested in the answer. So could you give us a little bit of an idea of how you actually make that happen for an interested group? So I'm a bit appalled
1: that so many people are out there doing team building events and team building training and other things that is not paying attention to the, what I call proven science of teamwork. And it's pretty darn straightforward, or maybe I just lucked out. But I'd like to talk about two things with you in the time remaining. One is I'm happy to share what I call the team orientation process or the things that we the conversations that I, I get people to have that gives them the best chance to come together as a team, the other thing is i'd like to talk with you about the responsibility process and its role in this good good so the number one predictor of people coming together as a team is what we already talked about, which is uh, task interdependence or having a shared clarity about some singularity in the future that we're jointly focused on arriving together the feeling Dr. Charles Parker, the feeling is a feeling of being in the same boat together, a feeling of shared fate. And it's a shared fate that we can do something about. And that's, that's a feeling state. So, you know, if I'm on stage, I get a couple of chairs and I'll I'll get a volunteer to come up on stage with me and put the chairs next to each other. And I'll say, let's pretend you and I are rowing a boat together, right? And you're rowing the left oar and I'm rowing the right oar. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is the first thing you notice is that they look over at me and they get their hands in sync with mine Mm -hmm. and say, wow, how fast did we get aligned when we're in the same boat together, right? We got right in trained. Beautiful, beautiful. And so there we go, rowing out. We're about a mile away from shore and this person looks over and next to my right foot, there's a gusher of water coming in the boat. Now, does she get her cell phone out? and call her best friend and say <laughs> Avery's going down, Avery's side <laughs> of the boat's sinking. She's not gonna do that. And it's because our fates are are tied. Her feedback, her communication, her feeling towards me is gonna be very different than if she's in her own boat. And then she sees my boat sinking okay, mm-hmm. and knows that I have a, a vest. Then she might get her phone out and call her friend, take pictures, you know, yeah, ha, yeah. Ha, ha, Avery's <laughs> going down. Same beautiful person. So the quality of leadership here and it can be peer leader, it can be a member of the team, it doesn't have to be the assigned leader or manager is to figure out how to have a conversation about what are we a team to do that requires all of us, is bigger than any of us, and none of us can claim individual victory until we do that thing. And so this is a conversation. So all of these things are conversations that I have teams have. so Calling yourself, the the hardest, the easiest team to build is a project team, Dr. Parker, because a project team can answer that question the easiest. Well, we're a team to deliver this project by this date that meets these requirements for these people. So a a laboratory definition of a team is that it's temporary, right? It exists for the term of project, Mm -hmm. the mission. So the hardest team to build is the executive team. Because they don't think in terms of what are they to do together. They think in terms that they've all earned the right to run their own ship. So, so their, their meetings and communication are about breaking everything up into budget pieces or goal pieces or reporting pieces rather than what they're doing together. So that's the first thing. The, the yeah. second thing is working on motivation and specifically intrinsic motivation and inspiration. Uh, what's in it for you and what's in it for me beyond a paycheck this time? And that goes to the venture of, are we uh, independent or interdependent, or are we in competition? And if our motivation can only come from pay or rewards or titles, and those are all around individuals, then we see each other as a risk instead of as help. But If the reason that you're in this project this time beyond a paycheck is because you're fascinated with the subject matter and the content, and you've been waiting your entire career to get your hands into this material, and the reason that I'm here is because I love organizing groups trying to work in this kind of technology, then your intrinsic motivation isn't in the way of mine, and mine isn't in the way of yours, and you can support me in winning, and I can support you in winning. And when I started teaching this, people really balked, asking each other, what's in it for you beyond a paycheck this time they They balked at getting personal you know well, yeah. they're getting a paycheck, they should be motivated. And I say, "Yeah, how many teams are you on where there's someone who isn't pulling their weight? <laughs> right? right, And tell me that you've picked up an extra portion to make sure that that team succeeds, right." yeah well, we like to think so, but the principle of the least invested coworker says that every team performs to the level of the person who cares the least about what the team is doing
0: Wow, that's a heavy so, one
1: so dynamically, the most powerful person on the team is the person who cares the least about what the team is doing, and the reason that they're the most powerful in terms of dynamics is that. We all, the rest of us know what's going on. It's unjust. It's unfair. We don't deserve to uh, have to carry their weight. So they get a share of the rewards, whether they contribute or not. And so we subconsciously or unconsciously, I don't know the right <laughs> whether it's sub or un, but we reduce our commitment to that team and put our shoulder into some other part of our work until we can get off of that team and get on to one that works better. So the second conversation that I would have with any group is, you know, around what's our level of motivation and inspiration. And if there's someone who really doesn't want to be here, when would we like to find that out now or six weeks or six months or six years down the
0: road? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So (laughs) I can see some socks rolling up and down on that one. That, that, yeah, <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's so whimsically confrontational,
1: <laughs> right? They say, Christopher, they say, but what if you ask somebody that question Then they say nothing? And my answer is, when would you like to know? <laughs>
0: you know. Oh my gosh, now, now at the beginning, when maybe you can do something about it, or oh, we're packing up on Sunday afternoon, right? Oh my gosh, yeah. that's totally interesting. That is, and you say that so in an almost self-effacing way, you know, it's so casual, but it's so completely meaningful. The way you preamble that whole situation, and I've really never thought about that before. I'm sure a lot of our listeners hadn't thought about it before, but, you know, you really don't have a positive regard for the group diminishes when the group tolerates that kind of... It's sort of like the whole value system of the group is compromised. You know, you imagine the prehistoric men chasing mastodons around in the Transvaal. I mean, in those days they probably just (laughs) killed the guy. You know, just you know, if (laughs) you're gonna mess around, we're just gonna eat you for supper, buddy. I mean, we don't have time for this shit. Pardon my French, we gotta move on down the road. This is serious. You know, you nailed it, Dr.
1: Charles Parker. What I noticed is teams in nature. So bad teams are a construct of organizational life of people being put into a place and held there by the structure of the organization. Teams in nature don't put up with the freeloader. They say, buddy, you're out of here. You're not pulling your weight. Yeah. (laughs) Right. You're out of here. Or the person never joins because they weren't interested anyway.
0: Yeah. There's no mission. You know, I'm going to tell you one other thing. You get a kick out of this because you're used to dealing with very high level corporate executives and bright individuals who are competitive in the world. I saw this happen out there shoveling concrete on the roads when I was in college. You know, I came in as the college guy, and they just, they looked me over, and they got to see what he, what's this guy going to do because he knows somebody to be here, and he's not going to be here in the fall. We're going to be out here shoveling concrete. Let's see what he does. And <laughs> What happened? Well, oh, I yeah, got Tell me about it. your tests. I, How I, did they test you? They said, this is the way we do it. I said, oh, my God, this is so cool. You know, because you don't know how to shovel concrete when on the team level. And a lot of people don't know that. They don't realize the importance of what you, the high volume of concrete you move around behind those concrete trucks out there on the roads. And if you don't have some partners moving that concrete, you just might as well go home because you're going to be dead. They're not going to partner up with you. You can shovel your brains out. You can get baked by the sun. You'll sweat yourself to death and you might as well just go home. But When you work with the guys and you double shovel, and there's a whole principle of double shoveling, which I won't annoy you with, but but it really winds up being, it has to be a team. You cannot do it alone. Just because of the nature of the concrete and the nature of, there's an expression in concrete, they call it, it's gonna blow up on you. Well, it, what happens is when you're out there in concrete, if it blows up on you, the stuff seizes up before you have it vibrated now. And uh, you don't want that to happen.
1: Yeah, That is not wow. cool. I get it. It makes, makes me think of a whole new metaphor for flow state. <laughs> yeah, you're right.
0: <laughs> Ouch. Ouch. That, yeah, that, that is a hard so, way to learn because, you know, when you get out there and, and now it's not a big team, that's a small team, but everybody's watching everybody else. So right. there isn't necessarily, it's just the question of the outlier is going to go home, even though he may not be a direct insult. His lack of contribution is his end. Pardon me. Yeah. Right. So I'll just, uh, one
1: more piece on the orientation, uh, team orientation process, which by the way, this comes from my first book, teamwork as an individual skill. And it's referred to in the second book as well, the responsibility process. book. the third conversation I would have people have, and lots of people are familiar with this, but I think we have it too soon in many teams or never. And that is a conversation about operating agreements and, you know, what are those few very important, very powerful, very meaningful behavioral agreements that we want to make that give us a high degree of trust in each other? So mm-hmm. a lot of people try and, and say that you have to start with trust. I think we discovered the trust by the alignment, which means it takes away some of the reasons for not trusting. And then the motivation piece is starting to get integrated and takes away some of the concern about whether or not this is a trustworthy situation. And then if you follow the, the dictum that, that trust is the residue of promises kept, then for me, the next thing is to take 100% responsibility for your word and for every agreement you make. And let's only make the most important agreements and let all the other behavior vary. So we make agreements about you know, how we're going to make decisions and what a time agreement means and what we're going to do if we can't follow through on something we promised to do, are we going to let people know immediately and some of these kinds of things. And then we start keeping those and that trust starts to get built there. So mm-hmm. for me, those are the three biggest pieces of science that contribute to giving a group an opportunity to come together as a team. Now there's, there's one more precondition, but I'll stop and let you reflect.
0: No, no, please. Let's go ahead because I'm looking at the time and I'm so okay. terribly interested in what you're talking about. I'm thinking I've got to run out and get the book right now because I haven't read the book and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so useful with so many people that I talk to and uh, because you just see this happen all the time. It's just, you know, and then we are all living in groups one way or another. So go ahead, please. Yeah, well, there's a copy on its way to you. Thank so. you. I'm looking forward
1: to it. You're welcome. So the precondition is to first take 100% responsibility for the quality of every relationship at work. So my experience is when I started this work, I think it's changed. Uh, We've got a much more emotionally evolved workforce today than we did when I started this work a Mm -hmm. few decades back. But at that time, I got to do some uh, assessment with some huge failed programs. And this was in a top a corporation that only hired the top 10% of engineers from the top 10% of engineering schools. So they thought high performance means hiring the best of the best. And I'm interviewing 100 engineers about to what do you attribute your participation in this failed program? And the number one answer I got was, I guess I got put on a bad team. And I woke up in the middle of the night with my conclusion was, my God, these people think that they have no power in their groups at work. Mm -hmm. They believe that they're powerless on the quality of the team that they're on. So I started. that's where I started really understanding personal and shared responsibility and realizing that anybody can choose to have these conversations about alignment and integration and motivation and keeping agreements and realize that they're powerful conversations that give people a chance to come together. So I take away from people, if you will, I take away the right to say I got put on a bad team. And my response is, how did you choose or create or attract that bad team? And how are you (laughs) continuing to do that? And Mm -hmm. how would you show up differently for that team to be different? Wow. And that's where the responsibility process comes in.
0: That is so cool. That is so very interesting because you just slowly but surely turn the screw. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, let's go ahead and. I mean, you're not. You're being very diplomatic about it. You're not saying, "Look, could you just please be a little more responsible yourself?" <laughs> no. But you come down to, "Hey, there's a realization here that you have to kind of walk through this thing." To well, the, s- a way to sol- solve it. So the responsibility process teaches us that
1: responsibility is different than you know the character trait that we grew up being told it is that some people have it and some people don't. The truth is that every time something goes wrong and we have a little frustration or a little upset, our mind goes into a hyperactive search for cause and effect. And the mind's answers, the reptilian brain, animalistic brain comes up with all kinds of answers. Doesn't matter how smart you are. And the first answers are, it's their fault or yeah, it's because right. of the economy, or it's time, I didn't have time, or it's the traffic, or it's the weather, or mm-hmm. it's the operating environment, or it's the process, or it's the bureaucracy. And this is a very well understood pattern now. And, and you and I and everyone we know are subject to it, which goes back to what I said earlier, Dr. Charles Parker, which is what the responsibility process research has taught me more than anything else is the humanity the people are doing the best they can. There's nothing wrong with them. We all are really good at avoiding responsibility. We're really good at it. It's hardwired into us as a way of coping when we're upset. And if we buy the answers that our mind hands us, then we stay stuck. And if we don't buy the answers, if we're able to become aware of what it's like to be blaming or justifying or beating ourselves up or feeling in obligation, then if we can catch ourselves doing that, then we can simply refuse to do it. We surrender to it, to use a popular word in terms of psychology releasing, and then we graduate up. So the stack is from blame to justify, to shame, to obligation, to responsibility. So when I tell people if they want an easy way to get out of obligation, which is where most of our colleagues are, is feeling that they're stuck in a life or job that they have to do that they don't want to do. Right. Mm -hmm. So we hate the bank. We hate the mortgage. We hate the elderly parents that need us. Mm -hmm. Right. That's all obligation burden and true responsibility is freedom. The realization that you are a, a powerful creature creating your own filters, which means you're creating your own reality. And if you don't like it, there's only one person who can change it. And that's me, right. Or you, And so that's my, my life is I get to teach people the freedom of responsibility. And oh, by the way, it's the essence of leadership. And it starts with self.
0: Dr. Christopher Avery, what a way to end the conversation. I could talk to you for another hour nonstop, buddy. Actually, I'm not talking with you probably as much as I should, because I so much enjoy listening to you. I'm not kidding at all about the quote book. That's that's another thing on your list of things to do. So helpful, so reasonable and interesting. I'm really looking forward to reading the book. So let's just close with where people can reach you. Let's get that done real quickly, if you don't mind. Sure. So if what you've
1: heard here really appeals to you and, and you think that this might be for you, I recommend that you check out the.leadershipgift.com. That's leadershipgift.com website and the subdomain, th-E thE. Leadershipgift.com. And if you just uh, search on my name, Christopher Avery, and the word responsibility, you'll find lots and lots and lots of resources.
0: Thank you so much, Christopher, for coming on board. I tell you, I really appreciate it. We're going to have to wind up, unfortunately, because we just got two minutes till this next interview, but uh, I just want to express my sincere appreciation. You're doing one heck of a service for a lot of people out there. And anytime you want to come back on and Continue this conversation. We'd be more than happy to have you on board. Thank you very much.
1: That's very gracious. I appreciate it. This has been enjoyable. And thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for helping me achieve my mission of changing the way the world thinks about responsibility. Thank you, Dr. Parker.
0: Thank you, buddy. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to Cobrain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. how to start adhd medications they're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start thanks for listening do connect and stay tuned together we can make a difference